0: Hi, writers, panel listeners. You like writing? You like entertainment? Well, we've got another forever dog podcast that involves both those things. I'm Lindsay Kaytai. And I'm Kelly Nugent. And we host Public Domain Theater, a podcast of highbrow readings and lowbrow commentary. Along with a special guest, we read a classic short story and interrupt it with hilarious commentary, wild theories, and sometimes rabbit screaming. It's like Masterpiece Theater meets Mystery Science Theater 3000. The podcast has been featured on AV Club, Vulture, and named in the top 50 podcast episodes of 2018 by IndieWire. And now we're doing a live show. So if you're in the Los Angeles area, come to the Lyric Hyperion Theater in Silver Lake this Friday, July 27th at 8 p.m we will have guests Mary Holland and Nick Weiger with us to delve into a classic or not so classic work from the public domain. Tickets are $7 online or $10 at the door. You can find the link to buy tickets on our Twitter account at public domain pod. If you want to know what you'd be getting into, stay tuned at the end of this episode of writer's panel to hear a clip of public domain theater. You're welcome.
1: Forever.
2: (coughs) Dog. Hello, Writer's Panel listeners. This is producer Brett checking in once again to provide you with a brief intro to this week's episode. Ben was at San Diego Comic-Con all last week. He participated in some amazing panels, including the Raved About Vertigo Comics panel, which we will be bringing you on a future episode of this very podcast. Today, however, we have a very, very special panel from this year's ATX Television Festival, moderated by Ben. It's the Nash Bridges Writer's Room Reunion Panel. That's right, the classic late 90s, Early aughts, Don Johnson vehicle about a fun-loving San Francisco detective who pals around with Cheech Marin and tackles a high-stakes crime every week. The writers of that very show, including some names that you will definitely recognize, Carlton Cuse, John Worth, Glenn Mazzara, Sean Ryan, Pam vizi they all reunited to talk about how the show came together, about the pleasures and challenges of writing a detective serial, and a whole lot more. In particular, this is very important, Stay tuned for an absolutely insane Hunter S. Thompson anecdote near the end of this panel, courtesy of Carlton Cuse. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. So without further ado, here is Ben and the Nash Bridges Writer's Room Reunion.
3: They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now,
4: Thank you for being here. Are you guys all enormous Nash Bridges fans? As I know, we all are. <laughs> we all watched it. We all loved it. Remember our favorite episodes. Um, we're going to spend a little time uh, with the creator of Nash Bridges, and then we're going to bring out everybody, and we're going to we're going to get Nashy. It's going to be good. Uh, please give a round of applause to Carlton Cuse. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, for, thanks for being here. Um, I, have, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, because it only just occurs to me. But why is
1: it so easy to make fun of this show? Uh, You know, it was wildly successful. It was a very successful show. I don't know. I mean, I kind of like they—they kind of made fun of it in The Sopranos, which um, Christopher was writing a Nash Bridges (laughs) episode, and I thought that was kind of the most awesome thing ever. Actually, I don't know. I mean, it uh, just—I think uh, you know—it just was kind of a very classic television show. And I think that that sort of, you know, and it had Don Johnson in it, who was kind of this, you know, very larger than life TV guy. And I think that, that that's why people thought that.
4: It's it's interesting uh, in watching a couple of episodes in anticipation of today that it does feel like a transition show between what TV used to be, like these sort of one-star cop dramas of the 70s and 80s to the more uh, serialized and, Um, sort of filmic shows now, but it was like, it was a very filmic looking show Was shot outside for the most very often.
1: Um, Fully on location in San Francisco, which was a, you know, a a real anomaly back then. I mean, NYPD blue was shooting on the Fox (laughs) backlot with like one New York street. So, uh, and we were actually on location in San Francisco full time.
4: Um, Let's talk about how you got involved with this show because there's a weird story, right? About how, There were versions of this before you even got there, which
1: wasn't quite the show. Right. I mean, so um, you know, before I got there, what apparently happened was um, Don Johnson had decided he wanted to return to network television, and he went out and sort of pitched himself, and CBS bought a just bought a commit. You know, networks when they want something, they'll just make a blind commitment. So they made a blind commitment to make a new show with Don, and. I guess they went through a bunch of different writers and different story ideas, and um, you know didn't really get anywhere with it. They actually made a presentation, which um, really? which uh, was kind of busted and didn't go anywhere. And then Les Moonves came in to run CBS, and. Um, I had known Les Moonves because I, the first show I created, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., was uh, yeah. thank, no, you, you thank you <laughs> <at, laughs> thank you. Uh, was at Warner Brothers Television and Les Moonves was running Warner Television, so he moves over to CBS, and um, and he basically called me up and said, "Hey, I got this commitment to Don Johnson, and we're kind of nowhere with it. Would you go meet with him?" And, uh, so I thought, sure, you know, like I, (laughs) I've been a huge fan of Miami Vice and I'm like, why, why not have a meeting with Don Johnson? I went and met with him and I, and the thing was I, I found him very charming and funny and, and Miami Vice was like very dark and nihilistic. And I was kind of like, oh, there's, we can do something with this. We can, I can, I, I know how to make this guy actually see a different side of him. And I'd also had been, I'd worked sort of not too long before that on, Um, two of the Lethal Weapon movies, Mm -hmm. um, Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3. And I thought, well, this is kind of a good model for what a show could be. And so I said to Don, I wanted to kind of avoid the whole development thing. I said, look, I'll write a pilot. Um, but i 'm going to just do it on my own. you know His one criteria was he wanted to shoot it in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and um, but I, I realized that like the whole development process had been very hard i 'm like i 'll do it i 'll give it to you. you either want to make it or you won 't make it and he was like, I think at that point fine because they 'd been through so many writers and stuff. so then I went to San Francisco and I rode around with a bunch of cops, which was like a whole other story, which was <laughs> really i mean like the first day we were literally chasing a guy who, with a gun, and I was trying to decide. <laughs> you know, in like a bad neighborhood, should I run close to the cops or not too close to the cops? And um, anyway, a lot of these ideas kind of ended up in the show. And yeah, funny. so I wrote the pilot and Don said he loved it. And then Les Moonves, the very, it was the very first show Les Moonves greenlit as the head of CBS. And he greenlit 14 episodes off of the pilot, which was I mean, not off the pilot script. I mean, not, oh, wow. there was no pilot at all. So yeah. we just immediately went into production and made made 14 hours of the show right out of out of the gate, I discovered later, though, you know that there had been all these other writers and all these other things, and so, like the Writers Guild determines credit. I had two separate arbitrations. I my first arbitration was versus Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> for the format of the show because Don was friends, and we'll get back to Hunter yeah. later. Um, was the Hunter was um, his neighbor in Woody Creek in Colorado, and he had kind of he had employed Hunter to write a format for a TV series. That was wildly different than what <laughs> my show was. So I won that arbitration and then I had a second arbitration against like the four or five writers who had all worked on the wow. scripts. And I ended up with Soul Creator by because I hadn't read any of the material and I hadn't actually engaged on any of the you know, I hadn't I right. just come up it with was my all whole original new thing. To you, yeah. So so that's what happened. And that's then funny. suddenly, you know, we I finished the script and Don said he wanted to do it less green 14 yeah. episodes and boom we were off now you have to make 14 episodes exactly TV with yes. the expectation
4: that you'll be, be making more yes. um was John worth the first person who was brought in was he I knew he had been sort of in he had worked for me
1: on part. on um yeah. the adventures of Briscoe County jr. Um I think Jed who you will meet in a minute okay. was was on before John but right Basically, at the same time. Well, let's they were meet all, them all now. at the same time. Let's meet let's, them all. Yes.
4: <laughs> let's meet all of them. Uh, please welcome Jed Seidel, John Worth, Glenn Mazzara, Pam Visay. the end. <laughs> hey, everyone.
1: Someone send them out. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> yeah, you come on it. Come on. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day.
4: <laughs> we only have an hour, <laughs> we have a lot to get through. Um, so, so Jed was the first person who was brought in, is that, that's right. Um, Jed, what were you doing at the time? Uh, what kind of work had, where had you been staffed? Had you been staffed? What were you does doing this, when you got this does job? Does this work? Do I need this? You're doing great. <laughs> uh,
5: I was working on some shitty show for UPN. <laughs> and I, I mean, I literally would sit there with the paycheck next to my computer as I wrote. It was so bad. And um, I guess was this I'm sorry to interrupt was this a half hour show it was an hour show it was an hour show Okay. and a friend of Carlton was the supervising producer this guy Jack Bernstein and I guess he had a conversation with Carlton about me (laughs) and if I if the show wasn't picked up you know I would be available so I went in and met with Carlton and I, I remember being terrified because you know it's like your life you go in there with these jobs and it's just like this huge thing to get one of these, you know, like a a job on a network show. And I remember just like totally lost my personality, was just sitting there, you know, like giving flat answers or whatever. And I I remember this moment where Carlton looks at me, he's like, you know, I wanted to give you a job, (laughs) but you don't seem that enthusiastic. And I was like, my body just drained of life. And then I said to him, you know, well, just let me come in and pitch some ideas. So I came in and pitched like... Fifteen ridiculous ideas, um, and then Wait. one of them was Evan as a transsexual cop. <laughs> and I remember Carlton started laughing, and I was
4: like, "Okay, I'm I may be in here." Yeah. Well, that that's the funny thing. I mean, for I would ask this of any of you, and we'll we'll come to each of you individually in a moment. But when you did go in to talk to Carlton to get the job, what were you going off of? There was a script, presumably that you had read. Was the tone apparent in the script? Did you see a pilot so you could see how actually very funny this show could be?
6: Well, I came in the second season, like after the mid-season, and had been on um, In Living Color Mm -hmm. and um, wanted to transition from sketch comedy and comedy into drama, which everybody's like, yeah, that's going to happen. And so I wrote a script, and these guys were my first drama meeting, and I asked my agent, do I do jokes like (laughs) you do in an interview? And they're like, just just answer their questions, that's all. So I remember I went into Carlton, and John Worth was there. And I, I, all I can recall is talking a lot. I thought I felt like I talked a lot. I may have said nothing, but it was a it was a beautiful office. I thought, wow, drama writers get some great spaces. It was the nicest and, office yeah. ever. Yeah, it was sma- I'm like, well, what where was so have nice I about been?
1: It was it- Don. Don being Don had gotten oh. this suite of offices that <laughs> yeah, was like oh more God. appropriate for like an investment bank, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were like wood paneled and super great fancy. offices. Yeah. The it best, was great the best offices, office yeah. in the office. Was Don's office, and sure. Don was never
7: so in never used Don's office
8: shooting, yeah. and you couldn't use his restroom. No. I remember. No.
6: Yeah. Well, it was beautiful, and I thought I have been in comedy in these, and I was a showrunner and yeah. in living color with partners, and we had you know shared offices in a you know corner of a building, and so I walk in, and I'm like, this is drama. This is where you got to do it. Um, but I and remember then it was just wait. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I I had a meeting and had no idea what to think after that, um, whether it was going to happen or not happen, but thought but it I'd, would be great to join drama um, <laughs> and leave comedy for a while. And, yeah.
4: and Pam, uh, Carlton and John, do you remember what you
1: responded to in Pam's, either the meeting or the work? I mean, I think that we were... You know, I have kind of a hard and fast rule, which is I will never meet with somebody unless I like what's on the page, mm-hmm. because writers can be very charming, and and um, like the worst thing would be to fall in love with somebody but then not like what they put on the page. Yeah. So it, it started with reading her material and really liking it, and also the fact that you know Pam was funny. I mean, a big part of Nash Bridges was was comedy, and I thought, well, this is the perfect thing. I mean, mm-hmm. she can come in and kind of she wants to you know, be a drama writer and we need more comedy in our show. Like this was a, and, and she was awesome in this meeting. Um, and so that was how it happened.
6: Yeah. And it, it, it ended up only being short term actually, right. cause it was, I was working with 20th television, had a contract with them. So it was what was called a loan out where they let me, um, join the show, Left the show on a Friday, got married on a Saturday, was supposed to start a show with Pauly Shore on the next Wednesday. <laughs> I went on a short honeymoon, like Friday night, the Saturday night I married, went to Monterey, came back, and the Pauly Shore Shore was already canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Carlton. He's like, I only had a contract for those weeks. I don't know what to do. So I, I, I
4: literally left Ashwood just to, you know, get canceled while I was on my honeymoon. Well, you'll come back for the Polish Shore Show reunion. Yeah, here next no. Year. Um, John Worth, uh, you. It says uh, in your bio that you had been, you had worked on Remington Steel very early in your career. Yes. Uh, and it seems like that's like the DNA of that show and that type of show is certainly uh, apparent in Nash. Like that sort of lightness to a thing, a thing that's aware of what it is. Uh, Well, can I back up for
7: one second? I'll allow it. And say something about the boss. Um, Carlton has an uncanny ability. I don't know if you were born with it or where it came from, but he can recognize um, writers off the page. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do because when you're reading a script, a lot of times you're not even really entirely sure who wrote the words that are on the page that are credited to the writer you're going to meet with. Um, I've never seen, honestly, I've never seen anybody with the skill that you have in identifying writers. um, And
5: what they're good at.
7: And what they're good at and promoting them. I mean, everybody here has gone on to have, you know, wonderful careers. And we all, when, when we started, we were certainly not where we are now, and I think it's a, a credit to you. I'm not trying to brown nose you, but honestly, this is the truth. Um, And so um, I've always tried to do that as I've gone forward in my career and have failed miserably pretty much every time. (laughs) But um, to your question, um, I had nothing to do with with the pilot or what was in the DNA of the pilot. I came on um, at the, I think you guys were doing the 12th episode maybe when I came in. And, and, you, and um, you
4: had been, we mentioned already, but you had been on Briscoe. Yeah, we Carlton.
7: worked on Briscoe. And I, I saw a lot of, um, you know, when, I, when when my agent first called me, I thought, uh, Don Johnson, I don't know, man. this, I don't know if this <laughs> is going to really work. And uh, But I had a new baby, and I was kind of desperate. And uh, Carlton had reached out to <laughs> me. How do I never heard this part of the story
1: before? <laughs>
7: <laughs> That's, this is what we're going to do here today. Yeah. Um, and... Um, I'd like to be sober now. Is that okay <laughs> with anybody? Just, um, so, um, so I thought, okay, you know, I'll go talk to Carlton. I read it. I read the pilot. and I read a couple other scripts, um, and saw some, a couple episodes. And I thought, hey, this is not what I expected it to be. And um, you know, Jed was saying he's been watching some of the episodes, and uh, they're they're very entertaining. And um, all the stories that we shared um, behind the scenes, uh, those stories are are you know also entertaining. But <laughs> what ended up on screen is very entertaining and I think it's we used to call it Cusian or we had all these names for you know the way things worked. But uh there's a lot of it's very Cusian in nature of
4: this show. You know, it's very kind of loopy and sort of like him. we yeah and we're gonna dig in on what that means in a moment. But let's let's talk to you guys. Uh Sean, you had also been in Half Hours, is that right?
8: Well, I was trying to be in half hours and having difficulty. I'd won a comedy playwriting award uh, that yeah. brought me out to L.A., and so I thought, oh, well, the next step is to be a sitcom writer, and I must have written a dozen sitcom spec scripts, uh, and I got a little freelance work, but I could never really land on a, on a sitcom, and I think ultimately I decided it was because maybe I wasn't the best hard joke writer, and I thought showrunners were looking for hard joke writers you know, to bring in at the lower levels, um, but I did get you know, the, I think the script that they read that got me the interview was a Larry Sanders show I spec written. script that I had written. Um, and and so I was going out for meetings for sitcoms and for dramas, just trying to land anywhere. And I remember getting uh, the call. And I had two shows I interviewed for within a week of each other. And <coughs> one was Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Joss Whedon. And I think I found out like right before I went into the Nash meeting that I did not get that job. <laughs> and so I was a little like, eh. But I did have a little uh, cheat sheet. Some agent, uh, I think maybe, represented you or you or somebody, and I told my agent like what your favorite episodes of the show were. <laughs> and I was able to get VHS copies of. There were like four episodes. It was like it was like uh, the, the Super Bowl ring episode, and there was a couple others. And so I I'd seen you know a decent amount of the episodes before but i focused on like those four episodes and like tried to think well what is it that they like about these episodes and why it might be and so all i remember was going in there and sort of dropping you know <laughs> like oh i like these episodes and hoping that you know that would sort of you know trigger something for them but i i honestly you know he's a tough guy to read um and i i didn't know when i left how it went. You usually have an idea, like, oh, this meeting went really well, or I really sucked in this meeting. And I left, I was like, oh, I don't know. And then mm-hmm. I'm really a night person. You know, I do a lot of work at night, and I sleep in. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we were living together. And uh, it was back in the age when you had an answering machine, and you could call in and check the answering machine. And she was working as a substitute teacher. And the call came in that I got the job at Nash while I was sleeping. It was like 10:30 in the morning. <laughs> I was still sleeping, <coughs> and uh, I'll never forget. I woke up at like noon that day. <laughs> that was quite the life back then. And uh, and I and I hit hit the uh, the answering machine, and the first thing I heard was my manager saying, "Hey, you got the job." And I, this is something I've been trying for years to get after, had a staffing show, big deal. And then the next two messages were my wife, like, "Oh my God, I just heard the message. you Got the job." And I'm like, Why on earth aren't you awake yet? Like (laughs) (laughs) And then I remember it started pretty quickly and you know your life changes so quick. Like you have a meeting and then like Two days later, you find out you have the job, and then like four days after that, like you're going to the office. I remember showing up at the office. Op- th- I, I was stupid. I didn't know protocol. I, I I didn't ask him what time the job started. So I was like, well, most people, you know, most things start at nine. So I showed up in the office at nine. The doors were locked. Nobody was there. Like I just waited in the lobby till like people showed up around ten. Tried to make it no big deal. Like I hadn't been here that long. And everything. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that like in Hollywood. Things tend to start around ten. That so so that just shows you how green I was to all of it. And then you know, and then all of a sudden, I'm in the room. It changed my life, and it was the next three years of my life. And I I learned so much from these guys.
4: Yeah, and we'll pick up there because I do want to hear about those specifics of being in the room. But can I uh, just say about
7: after uh, that meeting, um, Carlton very generously and um, basically taught me how to be a showrunner. And stand on my own on that show. I mean, every almost every good lesson I know about running shows I learned on that show. And we we he would invite me into these meetings. So we had that meeting with Sean, and Sean left. And you said, "What do you think?" I said, "I don't know. He's kind of scary, isn't he?" I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Is
4: this guy a motorcycle gang
7: or something?" <laughs> like what? <laughs> I mean, it's so.
3: I was terrified. <laughs> oh, good lord. Uh, Glenn Mazara, uh, was this your first gig? Yeah, this, this was my first thing. And I think the theme here is that Carlton's very difficult in an interview. He's very tough to read. <laughs> so, my first interview, but I was. I hired I, you all. Yes.
8: But, but, think but of the people who hired us. You know, the job, you know. you know, did you, did you just know this but, but you traumatized that? Says us.
3: Did you know this would be a roast? Yeah. So <laughs> so my story is I was in New York and I was working in a hospital. I was a hospital administrator. I managed an emergency room and ICUs and stuff. So I was right learning how to write from there and I came out and and was able to get an agent and a manager from New York. So I came out and I was staying on a friend's couch for for a summer. And I got and and uh, I guess they passed along a script. John read a spec Buffy script that I had written, and I heard that I have a pitch meeting at Nash Bridges. So I was like, okay, what's Nash Bridges? This was season four of the show, by the way. (laughs) So so I got some. So I got. I came over. I I borrowed some videotapes or whatever, and and um, completely did not understand that the show had comedy in it. So I was just thinking gritty cop show. So so I come into the room and I have and, and I didn't know how to pitch. Clearly still don't. So I, I just had one story worked out and what they wanted was just kind of bullets, you know. So I come in. Carlton is sitting across from me. And, and the sun was going down, so you were just a silhouette. You were just like Darth Vader's voice. <laughs> power move. Uh, you were Great in power move. <laughs> and and you, were, you were in the room, and, and you were wearing a hockey jersey and shorts, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't really covering everything, so you gotta look it up. <laughs> And I was, wearing, I was wearing a black suit and tie because that's what you wear to a job interview in New York. So these guys were like, who the fuck is the accountant? And, and we sit down and, and they go and completely thrown and says, well, what do you got? And I said, well, I have one case that Nash fucked up on. And he said, well, have you seen the show? It's Don Johnson. He's the smartest man in the world. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. No, I got, I got it. So, uh, uh, and I just started going through my papers and I lost my train of thought and I started... Panting and sweating, and I saw he was really nervous. Foot. I was having a, a panic attack, so finally Carlton said, "Can we get him some water?" And, and they brought me into John's office and put me on the couch, and like got me some ice water. Somebody loosened my pants. I'm not sure what, I, what that was about, but but they were just like, you, "Your kid, you're trying too hard," you know. And I just felt like, "What am I doing here? I don't deserve to be here. Go back and work in the hospital basement." So so John pulled off. Uh, you had a um, a book of I Love Lucy. Um, um, you, you know, like story episode episode guide, right? For I Love Lucy. And you look, and said, look, it's TV. It's been done before. You just take a book like this, go through, find something, and then twist it. So basically, that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> so so you also said... Uh, are you said, happy with where yes, you are now? thank you very much. I appreciate the advice. But then they had incredible mercy on me because they said, look, here's the premise of the show. Is it's heightened... And he is Batman, and this is Gotham City. And you got to bring us somebody that only somebody could take, that only Batman can take down. Hmm. And just bring us one liners. So I came back the next week, I had 30 of them, and, and, and they bought one. And and uh, you know they, uh, I was going to get a script fee or whatever, and that was enough to move my family to Hollywood. So That's I, I owe everything to their mercy, because they're, they could have just gone, another me out. Yeah. That really gone another
4: yeah. way. That really could have gone another way. So once you're all in the room, Carlton, how you know you had run Briscoe? Um, what did you take from that experience in show running? And like, how do you like to run a room, or how did you like to run a room at that time?
1: I mean, I you know I, I think that I love. Nothing more about my job than working with other writers. That's the thing that gets me up in the morning that makes me want to keep doing this. And, you know, there's nothing that's more exciting. I mean, I would just look forward to going into the writers room every day because there'd be funny stories and antics. And, yeah, you know, sometimes the work was really fun. Sometimes it was really hard. But, you know, I I, I try to be very inclusive. And we also, like... We break out all the story, and you know, and I, I kind of view the writing process as being a very collective one. That you know, it's not about any one script or anyone. No one can really be possessive about any one script. The show will work if everybody's invested in all the stories and all the scripts. And so, you know, we sit around the table, and 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 uh, John Worth would do a, the writing on the board, his beautiful penmanship, and we would write in incredible detail. The you know, we'd work out the episode in in very very detailed form, and by the time. This the board was done, you know that episode was fully baked, and um, so we, you know, I I, I I don't. It's hard for me to sort out exactly when I picked up what lessons about what I do along the way, but um, um,
8: I, I will say this that. Carlton had a lot of other responsibilities than being in the writer's room, if you know what. Sure you know he'd have to go take calls from production, he'd be in the editing room, he'd be casting, he'd be talking to Studio Network about various things, budget stuff, and so there'd be a lot of time where he was in the room, and I was always amazed. You know, we would work hard, we have the story, we think it worked pretty well, and Carlton was just amazing about coming in and for the next hour being able to say, that's great, this works, but you've got a sort of hole here and you should fill it with this, you should do that, you should do that. Um, I thought he was a magician I, I just c- couldn't believe it um, I, I've learned that A, he is a magician, he's amazing B, also it's always easier to come in and sort of critique I've learned that since i become the guy who's now in the room that, yeah. that comes in the room and the, the people are, oh wow, you did that I said, well no, Carlton did that, Joss Whedon did that you know, it's just easier to sort of see the holes when you haven't been involved in the conversations but it really was amazing how Carlton sort of come in and, and Identify and solve some problem that we hadn't even, you know, in 30 minutes that we had spent 12 hours unaware of.
1: I mean, I also have to really give a lot of credit to John, who really, you know, ran the room and was in there all the time when I was out, you know, dealing with whatever other crisis or other issues of show running came up and, you know, was really constantly, you know, moving the ball forward, guiding the story breaking and, uh, you know, uh, I, I, you know, no, and and it's crazy because now, you know, I've been working for the last three years on eight hours of Jack Ryan. I mean, we were making like 24 hours of Nash Bridges a year. Like we, we made like 121 episodes of Nash Bridges. I mean, if it was Sherlock, that would take like 75 years. Um, and like, you know, there's just no way that, that I could have done that without, uh, w- you know, without all these guys, and you know, p- particularly John, who really was
5: John. John for me sets the standard uh-huh. of running, yeah, a, running room. a room. He seriously does. A- Any time that I've been put in the unfortunate position of running a room, I, I always think of you.
2: <laughs>
5: well, and I try to... to do it like you. Thank you.
4: I'd like to hear more about that for all of you who were in the room for all those hours during the day when stories were being broken. Like John, how were you? getting these people to form a story as a group. And these are a lot of, you know, great minds, Um, great personalities. I just want to say one thing first. Um,
7: There's a lot of great Nash Bridges stories, and we tell them all the time. And people have said to me over the years, you know, have you you ever thought about writing a memoir? Have you written any of this stuff down? I said, have you seen Nash Bridges? Because everything that happened to me in those six years is on film (laughs) as having happened to Nash or Joe, and every single one of us up here would come in with some insane story of something that had happened to us, and Carlton would go, "That's a great story for Joe." Well, let's you know, let's get into some of
4: that. I'd like to hear what some of those stories were.
7: Well, I was watching an episode the other night um, where Cheech and his wife Inger um, were in bed, and they had rats in the in the uh, attic. And, um, and we had had, at my house, a lot of trouble with rats, and uh, we hired this guy, Rudy the Rat Man, and my <laughs> daughter was so enamored with Rudy the Rat Man, who had been smoking a little too much of his own juice that he put under the house for the rats, you know? And uh, I was, I just thought, oh man, this guy is really a weirdo. But my daughter followed him around like Pied Piper, you know, all over the place. So, um,
1: and I think you had... Yeah, some kind I had of a, rat had issue. Rats at the same and, then, time. and then one had um like the the guy set some traps and then it, they caught a rat and then I couldn't reach the rat man. And so the thing was <laughs> rotting in my <laughs> attic. Right. And I couldn't get the guy on the phone to come back out. So yeah. I had to go up in my attic and I think it was actually in the crawl space, and I had to like crawl like Under my house to try to find this trap and dispose of the rotting rat myself after like four days of no return calls when the smell was unbearable. So, yeah, so these all you know, basically, when you're making 22 hours of television a year, everything that you do ends up (laughs) in the show because you just, you just. Run through ideas, which is why, like, 100 episodes in a Nash Nash was like doing a case with a chimpanzee, like, anything you could think of. <laughs> not that that's that was a little bit of a non sequitur, but <laughs> it was an example of like any idea. It's like, well, Clint Eastwood had two huge movies where he acted with a orangutan, so like. We can put oh, it that, the that with That was always
5: the big joke, as we would always say, oh, we'll do that in the fifth season. <laughs> and then the fifth season... <laughs> and then we got the season five. Doing, yeah, you start know, doing all this.
8: Our writer's room was on the ground floor of this office building, and and it had windows that looked out on the world, and there was a street where a lot of people would park, and the building across had like casting offices and stuff, so there were always these actors like parking and getting out and going... And, you know, and, and, and sometimes some attractive women would get out of the car and you'd sort of, you know, you'd get distracted for a second from the board. You look, they were walking. Around. And one time, this sort of beautiful red-haired woman sort of gets out of the car and sort of got our attention. Then all of a sudden, a second beautiful red-haired woman got out of the car behind her looked exactly like her. And then a third one, it was like this clown car of beautiful red-haired women started coming out. And we were just like, what's going on? What's, what, we, what is this? It's crazy. And we turned that into a story. Like, like within a week, we were breaking a story. And, and um, Elizabeth Burke. Well, the same yeah, thing yeah. Happened.
7: Elizabeth Berkeley. Um, you, do you all know who she is? So I used to refer to that office as the aquarium because we were inside and we were never outside, and there was a lot of life happening out there. And we could never, we could never get out there. And so one day I'm sitting there and we're stuck on a story, and we're all in there, you know, just smelly and doing whatever you do in a writer's room. And and I'm looking at this woman, and she gets out of her car. And she looks, and she saw us in there. <laughs> and that was the first thing I thought,
8: oh my god. And no one ever acknowledges us. She sees that. She's seeing us we, right we now. We exist.
3: <laughs> There's an entire and, wall of glass. It's and not I that know, hard to look through glass. But then she starts
7: walking up toward the building. And I'm, and I'm going, oh my god, holy shit, she's coming up to the window. <laughs> and then Jed goes. That's Elizabeth Berkeley, And then we all went, oh, God, don't look, don't look, don't make eye contact. And so she's up at the window, and she comes up, and she goes like this. And she starts talking to us like, I can see you. And then about three seconds later, Carlton is outside walking up to her, and I went, he got out! How did he get out? He's out there, there with a
1: her. There was an emergency exit that we never used. And then all of a sudden Carlton used it was like he out was there. It's just there.
3: It like did she home. come in and she talk did. to she us? She came her in for, in for into like the half writers an
5: hour? I think we put her on the show, didn't we? did? We? No, she was on the show. <laughs> and uh, she was really ballsy, too, because she just came in and she was just chatting with yeah, us. She'd like all. a job? Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll put you in the show. I was scared to death. Is that how the monkey got the job, also?
7: the monkey um show <laughs> Um, get
1: bananas. Get bananas. Um, with, with Stone Cold Steve Austin, right. and a we'll chimpanzee. get to that. You guys should totally be watching your <laughs> Nash Bridges episodes. It's, yeah, they're all on
4: CBS All Access. You guys,
7: Glenn no Glenn has a good way of telling the story. You gotta because I sort of forgot those details, but they they made me laugh really hard well, last night.
3: What What happened was we had an episode in which Nash, so so Nash and Joe sometimes would have they had a detective agency. And they t- did side cases, and that often led to the comic B stories. So they were babysitting a celebrity chimp named Bananas in this particular episode, because we wanted to do some comedy for Don. And, and, and for some reason, we spent weeks watching every chimpanzee movie, <laughs> Dunstan Gets Loose or whatever it was. We, we, and so we did our research, and we write this episode. And the episode was, the last scene of the episode was supposed to be that. Um, Bananas, who everybody thought was male, was really female and has a crush on Nash and is upset that now the case is over and Nash is going to leave and they're going to break up. And so Nash has to have a scene where he's like, look, we're just two different people. We come from two <laughs> different worlds. This isn't going to work, right? So just as we're about to release the script, someone, one of these guys, got nervous that Don thinks we're, gonna, we're making fun of him, like having this scene with this, this chimp. So they wrote it to that it was Joe, and Joe was going to have this scene, and Nash was going to get some jokes at Joe's expense, but Joe was going to get the breakup scene. So then we get a call that Don's on the phone, and he wants to talk to all the writers in the room. And that very rarely happened. I think it happened once or twice or something when I was there. And uh, so everyone gets in the room, and Don gets on the speakerphone, and he goes, what fucking show are you motherfuckers writing? That monkey loves Nash. So we changed it, and it worked. It played. It was very tender. And the little chimp hugs him, and he gives a kiss on the cheek. And it was so sweet. And it was like, Don made it work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
4: it's really, I'll say, like, you guys knew where to put Don Johnson. He. Th- he makes this show in so many ways, like another actor could not pull off can, can, both can I, the
3: comedy and the, the sort uh, of cop agreed. stuff. and he really had some acting chops. We had some yeah. scenes where like, his daughter was, was injured. We had a scene where another cop was killed, and, and he really can go there. I mean, he's yeah. a really wonderful actor. But I want to I just kind of riff from this to something you were Absolutely. asking before, because I think the most important lesson I took from this was something that the, the two of you, that everybody impressed on me was you know it's Nash Bridges and this is really the heart of TV it's cool people doing cool stuff every week and and people tune in to watch Nash Bridges kick ass and be awesome and funny and charming and and sometimes you know that can get you can tie yourself up in knots to make that happen but that's why we love TV and that and this was like a crash course in how to do that everything had to be about Nash he couldn't walk into a room and the bad guys in the room and he doesn't know he's the bad guy so we created a scene where he would say, look, bad guy, your ass is mine. We call the scene, your ass is mine. and <laughs> and then, and, But I'm going to go off, have some fun with the chimp, and I'll come back and arrest you in two two acts or something, <laughs> something like that. But, but it, you really, it, like the heart of TV that I learned was really from writing this show and was from the structure that you put it together in the It was important to room.
8: do a star vehicle show, because yes. I remember you had written a document, Carlton, that I was handed... To read before I started the job. And, and I think in the first paragraph, it said, like in all caps, this is not an ensemble show. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this, this is a star vehicle for Don Johnson. The idea is, you know, people love Don Johnson, and we're gonna give different versions of the Don Johnson they wanna see each week. And we have to find the variety in that, we have to find the thing. But it, it always sort of stuck with me that even, you know, a show that I'm doing now, SWAT, you know, I, I think in those terms, wish tomorrow more. <laughs> You know, I, I told my writers, this is not an ensemble show, right? This is a Shamar Moore delivery vehicle, <laughs> you know, and we're going to show different sides of Shamar. Yes, we're going to give the other actors good stuff to do, but first and foremost, if Shamar is in a scene, he's got to have something cool to do in the scene. It was completely out of this sort of thing, and I but never this, sort of thought of that This way. is the
5: secret of Carlton, is that Carlton actually likes to mentor writers, which I think most showrunners don't have the time to do that or don't enjoy doing that. And Carlton, I think, actually takes pleasure in doing that, which is a writer, you know, especially if you're you know, a new writer or a young writer.
8: Is, well, you I, know, I had amazing. heard, because I did not get that Buffy job, and I heard later how hard it was on those shows to sort of prove yourself. And I ended up thanking my lucky stars afterwards that I did not get that Buffy job, and that I spent my first three years as a steady professional writer working for these writers, because I don't think I would have had nearly and, and then the success deal? I've had. Well, then I was able to go work for Joss afterwards, but it took the three years of learning how to be a professional writer that yeah, I would not have succeeded starting off on Buffy. And I was able to you know, do okay on Angel afterwards because I had this stuff. And, and by the way, it wasn't, always, uh, it wasn't always professional writing stuff. I'll never forget one day, you know, John's in the middle of doing something, and then he just sort of turns to us like, like mid-thought. He's like, do you know what the secret to getting rich in Hollywood is? We're all like, this has nothing to do with the story. What's he doing? And then he just goes to the board and writes, don't get divorced, <laughs> Really? <laughs> which is something I have thought about all, 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 all the time.
7: I think I'm I, getting I this think info I said, stay, okay. stay, married. <laughs> stay married to your first wife.
8: <laughs> <laughs> was that what was, well, I, and I, I still am, I think the 20 only, years later. The
7: only mistake somebody... we, we made with you, Sean, was giving you that office with the big shelf where you could sleep. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because once we did that, somebody go wake up Sean. Tell him the writers' room is in session. Uh, maybe I, I, you never even went home. I'm not sure for a few I, days there, because you would write at night, right?
8: I would write at night. There was one or two nights I think I slept over in the office writing because uh, at a certain point we had a baby, and you know, not the biggest yeah. house, and and <laughs> and I would just say, you know, if I'm going to get this script done, let me go and sort of. There's nothing more depressing than being in the office on a Sunday when no yeah. one else is there, and you're trying to bang out a script that's due Monday. Yeah. Um, because as I was complaining last night at dinner with John, uh, we didn't have a lot of writers on that show. You know, it was only six or seven, and and. We could never leave the room. So when you had a script due, you would have to write it at night or on the weekends. You wouldn't be able to use the sort of workday because you'd still have to be helping break these other stories. So there were a lot of weekends for me at the office, you know, trying to crank out the script that was due. Yeah, yeah, uh, Pam. Yeah, you know, I, I
6: was going to say I agree with Sean about the lessons learned because I came from comedy, <laughs> and the way comedy worked is. Someone said one really broad stroke thing. Everyone laughed, and that was an episode. (laughs) Then you went off and wrote it. And then the room sat together, and you pitched jokes day after day, and you rewrote every single day. So it was a completely different um, format for me when I walked into this room, and I remember Uh, We were breaking all the stories So we broke I think Jed's was first And then another writer named Reed And John would use Different colored pens As you went through your story But by the time They got to my story My story was like Black pen Black pen (laughs) No red No gray And I kept screaming There's no colors There's no (laughs) colors We need more colors Because colors represented Other sides of the story But that was It was such a lesson In breaking down Exactly what happened And had I Been anywhere else. And that's still the method I use today. That's right. the only way I do a room. I, you know, you go to the board, you write with colors, you break your story. And I can't imagine when I hear of other shows where you walk in, you pitch an idea and you go off and write an outline just for your producer. And they'll tell you if you made you got it done. Yeah. It scares me. I could not, I could not even work on that kind of show. Yeah. So this was my only example and my only lesson on how to break story. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
5: What, what? Going
7: back to the question you asked earlier, um, everybody on that staff could write an episode of Nash Bridges, mm-hmm. but kind of the genius of of the makeup of that room is something that's stuck with me ever since, and I've tried to um, be conscious of this when I'm hiring staffs now and in the intervening years is you know you don't want um, six or seven Tom Bradys in there you you know you need a quarterback. You need uh, somebody who's going to run the ball. You need somebody who's going to block for you. You need somebody, you know, or if you want to use baseball, you need one shortstop, one second baseman. And and that's the reason why I felt um, it was so uh, important that everybody be in there all the time. Because Jed's perspective was different from Sean's, was different from Glenn's, Pam, and so forth. Um, and so everybody's head. Going into your story really made your story just that much better. And plus, it was more fun with everybody being in there. But when I look back on it now, from this standpoint, it was a little bit of cruel and unusual punishment (laughs) to force people to be in there all the time and not give them any time during the workday to to write a script. Um, It was... Very, very difficult. It was, it was probably necessary
1: because one thing. During 22 hours. And now yeah. it was
8: only 22 <laughs> hours, but those episodes were filmed in seven days, which yeah, meant that days. we needed to break a new episode every seven business. You know, Now most networks, almost all shows have at least eight days, yeah. hours to do. Back then it was like seven days. And I mean, it was a machine that needed those pages. And, and we didn't have You know, I've got 11 writers right now in SWAT. We had six. When I was there, you know, so so I think we I think you did what we needed to do on that show to make that show work.
4: Uh, I want to ask about a couple of specific things. Uh, Do you all have questions? I'm going to come to you next. Yes. Yeah. A couple of questions. Okay. Um, The things I I specifically want to ask you about first, uh, you mentioned Stone Cold Steve Austin uh,
1: appeared a number of times on the show. Anything there you want to talk about? <laughs> I mean, CBS, you know, part of CBS's methodology is they're, they're a star driven television. So whenever sweeps would come around the network, this was an old, I mean, this show took place. I mean, you actually, we, we were talking about this earlier, that this show kind of transitioned between sort of maybe old school 70s television and sort of more modern types of, you know, like police procedurals. But like one of the old adages in the network business, was that they they would measure ratings during sweep periods, which were in like um, November and in May, and those ratings were particularly important. And so they would constantly be putting pressure on us to do guest casting and come up with people. And um, I think behind um, like Stone Cold Steve Austin was one of the biggest wrestlers in uh, the world, and that audience fit very well for Nash Bridges. And I don't remember specifically how we. But we were just looking around to try, you know, and you would it would take up an enormous amount of time because you would, for every like ten people you would ask, you know, you would get nine passes, and it would just take a long time to find someone. and And Stone Cold Steve Austin wanted to transition and have an acting career, and so he was very excited about the idea of coming on the show. So that was that was how he showed up.
4: And I, I will say, I mean, having watched now a few episodes of the show, those guests characters pop like you yeah. guy, you all gave them he did well, things to do i think
8: that's i don't think the plan was to use him in multiple episodes right. i think my memory is it's like oh he's actually really good in this and, yeah. and it was like let's do some more of them. but i think at base I, it's a I testament a stone, to the right
7: i have a steve austin story which is really a don johnson story mm-hmm. carlton and i were on the set um we were we were on location and um it was a scene with the cuda and um we had several Kudas and one. That's one, the
8: car they drove that around. That was the it, car, yeah, the know. yellow car. The one,
7: one was a sort of a hero car, which was really beautiful. And um, the transfer guy or the stunt guy or somebody, um, when we were standing there, um, we'd finished the scene, and Carlton and Don were talking about something, and the the guy said to me, uh, "You want to drive it?" And I had been talking to Steve Austin and. And he had stepped away. So this really isn't a Steve Austin story. But um, so the guy said, you want to drive it? I said, oh, hell yeah. So we opened the door. And I was just sitting into the car. And this claw came up and grabbed me on the shoulder and yanked me back. And it was Don. And he said, that bitch will get away from you. That was as close as I got to driving that. <laughs> this is
5: the car. thing that this is another thing that I thought was remarkable though watching the show again was how fast he drove that car.
1: Yeah, and free, It, was, right? free it was also the craziest really? thing ever. Like this is on un- I mean it was remarkable. Never in the history of my career, and I've been doing a lot this for a long time in a lot of shows, have I seen anything close to what Don did. So there was normally when you drive in a car, you either you it's either on a process trailer, so it's parked on a trailer being towed by another car, or there's a rig connecting the car with the cameras in it to the front of the car. Or the car is sitting on a sound stage and there's green screen around it, and you put in plates at the background. No, we drove a camera car with a camera on a gyro mount on an arm that would swing out, and Don would free drive the car behind the camera car through
8: do, through these San Francisco streets.
1: Do, do dialogue sometimes fire the, his gun <laughs> with like a foot of clearance between like him and the lens,
8: and he would know if he would know if like Cheech was getting blocked, and so he would either slow down or speed up. He, he would do as long well as he know, but he'd also know, oh, I'm blocking the other actor right now. And he would adjust the car. It was and nuts. And, and when
1: you go back to watch your Nash Bridges episodes, as I'm sure you're all going to do after <laughs> this panel, the car never stops. He's like, no, no, the the is never going to stop. So we had like eight motorcycle cops that would just go and block streets. So. They never stop at a signal light in the entire 121 <laughs> hours of the show. No
8: one has ever driven through San Francisco as quickly as Nash Bridges was always able to drive it, through San Francisco. Except for Don when he
7: was on his way to dinner.
6: <laughs> I coined um, up phrase on my other shows. I'm like, I am would always scream, we need a kuda de shot. <clears throat> which
7: meant
6: you need to be below a hill and see a car coming up <laughs> and into the air. And I'd scream, and they'd go, kuda shot. I'm just, just, it's a car coming up. We need a car That's flying awful. in the air.
4: Uh, by way of introducing this next piece, I want to ask the group, and then we'll to you, Carlton. Was there stuff in the room where uh, you said, this is two Nash Bridges for Nash Bridges, or this is a wrong road? I mean, this is 122 episodes you have to fill. Was there Were there wrong roads you went down, or stuff that was too crazy for this show? One thing that
7: is remarkable with regard to that is um, um, Carlton was really the Don Wrangler as a creator and executive producer of that show. And sometimes I, I'm, this is just my take on it, but I think those, those um, interactions were super intense, and Carlton would say, come on, J-Dub, come on, we're going to San Francisco. So I would get to tag along, virtu- and it was virtually free, because I wasn't, you know, in the line of fire or anything, and I was just sort of a witness to everything that was going on, and I think it's safe to say that we had some pretty crazy experiences in San Francisco um, with Don, and uh, none of which we can talk about here. Sorry. Um, And we would come back after those excursions and sit down in the writer's room, and we would tell these guys what we had just experienced over the last 24 hours. And some of it was really insane. And then somebody in the room would say, that's a great idea for an episode. So we would put that material through the Nash Bridges writers room, and it would become stories. And I don't think Don ever called to say, what the hell are you doing? You're doing my life, Bubba. I mean, he never said anything about it. But a lot of that stuff,
4: that insane stuff, came out of his life, which was crazy. Um, There was was a uh, situation where there was something too insane for this show.
1: Yeah, I, I, thought, about I thought you guys would all in, enjoy this uh, story. So as um, you know, Don's neighbor in uh, Woody Creek, Colorado was Hunter S. Thompson. And as I told you before, like I had to arbitrate against him. And so basically in the fifth season of the show, Don um, came to me and said, I want Hunter to write an episode of Nash Bridges. And, you know, for those of you who are familiar with Hunter Thompson, and those of you who are familiar with what is uh, the elements of a CBS television show, (laughs) there is a Grand Canyon sized gulf between those two things. You know, a CBS show is about a work family and a home family, and there is kind of heroism and, uh, you know, kind of very, it's got to be very kind of clean. Hunter Thompson, not so much. So I thought, actually, I actually have the original notes that Hunter sent me for this story. And I, I thought you would enjoy. And I know, I'm, I'm very happy to see there are no children in the room. <laughs> um, so I am going to actually, I'm going to sort of walk you guys through a little bit of this. I'm going to sort of skip around because, uh, well, for a variety of reasons. Um, so. Um, this, this was the, so, you know, and this was like, you know, Don, it wasn't like, you know, could you have Hunter write an episode? It was like, no. So, so Hunter, he says, I'm going to have Hunter send you, uh, we commissioned Hunter, we, you know, he's basically like, I'm going to have Hunter send you the pages that, you know, and he says like, I, he sent them to me. It's great. I'm going to send them to you. So this is what I get. So the, the show, the episode is supposed to start with this suggested voiceover. The first time I saw the boob doctor was when my daughter brought him home and showed me his latest handiwork. Jesus, the freak had done something horrible to Cassidy's tits. Cassidy was his daughter in the show. (laughs) They were long and pointed like torpedoes, and her nipples were bright red and swollen around the healing flesh. Oh, God, I screamed, you goddamn murdering quack, I'll kill you. Then I kicked him in the balls until he blacked out and went blind from pain. (laughs) This is where we pick up the story. It is a hot Sunday morning in San Francisco, but there is no sun. The waterfront is shrouded in a thick, warm fog which has hung on the city for 33 days and nights, driving men mad with unseen fear and delusions. (laughs) It was a brutal, soul-sapping fog, a deadly weather inversion that strikes California only once every 200 years. (laughs) Hospitals filled up with victims of a strange malaria-like disease called agu. Fever. In the middle of all of this, Nash is jailed overnight for beating and kicking a prominent plastic surgeon into a coma <laughs> on Saturday night, then following him back to his opulent office on Fillmore Street and attacking him again. <laughs> no reason was given, and the newspapers savaged Nash mercilessly, calling him a dangerous thug. Um, uh, Cheech reaches out. No, don, no, he's innocent, uh oh wait, I think I missed the part here, i apologize
4: uh Possibly well anyway, you didn't
1: uh <laughs> yeah anyway um i'm j- i'm just going on. so so basically uh. Yeah, she, she's just sort of saying, you know, this, the, this, this doctor is innocent, I checked him out. He says he came over to your place to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage, but you took one look at him and went crazy. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't even do boob jobs. He's an eyelid specialist. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit, says Nash. He showed them to me like he was proud. He breaks into tears again. And then she told me the same thing. She loved those new boobs. Last night she told me to eat shit and die. <laughs> Then she told me that my own goddamn father put her up to it. Um, The dirty old bastard told her he'd pay for the operation. And then he gives the goddamn quack a bad check. I'd like to kill the lying old fuck. And then Incident says, I think we should call this episode Family Values. (laughs) Good lord. (laughs) Um, Just, uh, anyway, at the end of act one, Nash is left weeping helplessly in the hot fog on the top deck of his barge headquarters, while angry winos and terminal victims of the Agu fever throw glass bottles, coins, batteries, (laughs) and random chips of concrete at the hull of his boat. Nash is being pilloried in the Chronicle and all the local TV stations and the mayor and even his own daughter, who now despises him for savagely beating up a famous and socially prominent San Francisco plastic surgeon who has allegedly operated on Cassidy's beautiful breasts. Um, They denounce Nash as a vicious Neanderthal cop with an uncontrollable temper, and fists of stone. <laughs> they, they want him charged with attempted murder, sexual harassment, extreme police brutality, and nine other counts involving suspicion of incest, abuse, contributing sodomy with a minor, and gross sexual imposition. <laughs> It looks like the end of Nash Bridges until Joe miraculously turns up new information in quotes that the respectable local surgeon is in truth a felonous quack from Texas known as Dr. Nork. <laughs> uh, I'm almost done. <laughs> that is act two. Forgive me, but I find it cool to think in these transitional terms. <laughs> I know you can easily translate it. <laughs> anyway... Uh, Act three will necessarily involve some kind of murky redemption for all the show's good guys. This will be tricky, but I think it can be done. To wit, Nash will be so desperate by the end of Act 3 that he'll heroically beat a total confession out of the evil boob doctor doctor, in an epic confrontation in the Marble Rotunda in the Hall of Justice with hundreds of cops and lawyers looking on. It is a long and tortured fist fight. The quack is a six-degree black belt who is also a professional hypnotist (laughs) who fights with surgical tools and uses his eyes
3: to... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> to uh, stare opponents into a frenzied coma as he attacks them. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it turns out Dr. Nork's boobs job failed, incidentally, and left Cassidy with three small hissing holes in her chest. Okay, that's it for now. I want top dollar for this one, bye. <laughs> Your neighbor, Hunter S. Thompson.
4: Oh, okay. Lord.
8: Now, my memory of this is that Carlton came in and read us this whole thing, we're all laughing. And then there was a pause. He goes, now we do have to figure out a way to make this work. (laughs) I, and we did it, and we found—I forget which little nugget that we took. And I think that was another seat. episode. But we got a there story was that, There was like the pump action. It was episode. pump action. Oh, it was pump action. Well, yeah. Yeah. He does. Where, he has yeah. a couple
4: of story uh, credits.
5: Pump, on yeah. The yeah. Show. Pump,
3: pump action was about a uh, a bodybuilder with roid rage and Hunter. Oh, so that was a
8: different so this, Hunter's this Hunter's,
3: Hunter's write-up was was uh, that the guy was masturbating in the meat department at a supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't. We didn't use that part. But <laughs> no, We I, did do the episode
1: this, uh, about this steroid one, use. This one was where he he got like a fever. It became quack fever, I think. And he had uh, a fever yeah, and he had yeah. all these like weird fever dreams <laughs> or something. I don't. That, I don't know how sense. we actually bridged the gulf, but we made an episode of television that, huh, that has Hunter's name on it that bears no resemblance <laughs> to the document that I Carlton just read Tep, to Carlton. you. He got top
8: dollar. He got paid Guild minimum top dollar. top dollar for that.
1: Tell him the story of um, um, when we. Uh, we're out at Woody Creek, and we met Don and Hunter. Oh, God. So uh, one more Hunter Thompson story. Um, uh, so D- John and I would go out at the beginning of the, some of the seasons to sort of just tell Don what we were doing for the next coming season. And so we were out pitching him the season, and, and Don wanted to take a break. And he said, well, let's go walk. And he had this beautiful ranch, and, he, and we he, he walked us down to this guest house that stood on the property between his ranch and his neighbor Don Henley's ranch, very high fluting real estate. And he gets on his cell phone, and he's like, oh, you know, Hunter Thompson. Hunter's coming over. And so a few minutes later, Hunter pulls up in his Jeep Cherokee, and he gets out of the car, and he's got like a 44-ounce Big Gulp cup filled with Tanqueray and lemonade ice cubes. And it's like 11 in the morning, and he's like (laughs) shit-faced. And we kind of walk around a little bit. And then we had come down this sort of back road from Don's Ranch. And then uh, Hunter says, well, I'll drive you guys back up to the house. But in, we, So we get in the car. Hunter's driving. Don is in the front seat. And John Wirth and I are in the back. And instead of going up the back road, Hunter goes back out the way he came in, which was to the Colorado Highway. So now we're on this public highway. Hunter is clearly well over the legal alcohol limit. We pull into the front of Don's ranch. And he says, he starts cackling. He says, let me see if I can make the bridge. And Don's, there was this nice drive that went down to this crowned storybook kind of bridge that went across a creek from, you know, to where his actual house was. And Hunter starts speeding towards this in his Jeep Cherokee. And he's got the thing floored. And I I realized that like, if we actually make it, if we, if we make it over the, to the bridge at this speed, we're going to just crash into it. And if we miss the bridge, we're going to plunge into the creek. And all I could think about were the news headlines the next day that were going to say, Don Johnson, Hunter Thompson, and two others dead. (laughs) (laughs) And then that that was about 1130 in the morning. And
7: um, about 5 AM the next morning, uh, we were in Don's kitchen. He lived in this beautiful ranch house. And he said, hey, anybody hungry? And we're going, well, yeah, hungry. And we'd like to go to bed at some point. Could we just pitch these stories and get out of here? Which we never did. So he he had a whole staff of people. And they came in and they started cooking for us. And so we're all sitting around that little table in the kitchen. And we're eating. And and Hunter S. Thompson is right next to me. And we had gotten up probably at 5 o'clock the day before to get on a plane to get out there and everything. So we're sitting there and we're eating. And it's... It's just been an insane 24 hours. And Hunter S. Thompson looks over at me and he goes, You're scared shitless, aren't you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I said, Yeah. <laughs> uh,
4: all right, I think we need to get out of here. I apologize. Do they, do they need the room? Yeah. All right, that's all fair. Right. We, we'd go long, they but we can't won't. have it. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists.
0: Thank
1: you for being here.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Writer's Panel. And as promised, here's a clip from our podcast, Public Domain Theater. Please subscribe and join us for our live show this Friday. You're welcome. (coughs) Oh, man. And then of a sudden, she almost shuddered. It is very wild, she said to Mortimer, who had joined her. One could almost think that in such a place, the worship of Pan had never quite died out. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious! They laughed Hilarious. the boring people they were. <laughs> the worship of Pan never has died out, said Mortimer. Said old dead Mortimer.
5: <laughs> what is Mortimer doing in town? <laughs> Seriously. Worshipping Pan.
0: Worshipping Pan. Maybe his voice is like... Other newer gods have drawn aside his votaries from time to time, <laughs> but he is the nature god to whom all must come back at last. He has been called the father like of all the gods. It's like Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> but most his children have been stillborn.
5: <laughs> That's what he is. Deathbed Bill Clinton is what he is. <laughs> <laughs> DBBC.
1: Forever. <laughs>